Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So I can basically guarantee you that you will not get through this holiday season without hearing Ronnie Spector's Christmas music. I mean, Frosty the Snowman, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, come on. Ronnie loved Christmas as a little girl, but she wasn't going on sleigh rides through the snow. She was a city kid. I remember being in school, and in, in the books, they always had Santa with the black, you know, the black boots on coming down the chimney. So I asked my father, I said, we don't have a chimney. Where's Santa? How is he going to get here? I was so upset and frustrated. And he said, Ronnie, Santa is coming down the fire escape. I was so happy, Jesse. I ran to my room. I put the covers over my head, and I fell fast asleep. And that's the true story. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my interview with the girl group superstar, Ronnie Spector. As the lead singer of the Ronettes, she recorded some of the most iconic Christmas music ever made. She'll tell us some of her favorite holiday memories... We'll also talk about her career and about some of the gentlemen that she flirted with when she was in her prime. John Lennon was a cockeye over me, and uh, he took me in this back room at Deco Records, and I almost had to use a whip to get that guy out of the room. But first, I'll sit down with Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Why would he record a heavy metal version of What Child Is This? Because I'm the metal god and I can do what I damn well want. <laughs> we'll talk about why he picked out the most spiritual Christmas songs to record and about the time he spent living as both a metal god and a closeted gay man. Plus, I'll tell you about my favorite holiday tradition. That's all coming up on our Bullseye Holiday Special. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Today, I'll talk to a true metal god. In fact, a man whose listed nickname on Wikipedia is Metal God. Rob Halford, the frontman of Judas Priest. You wouldn't necessarily go to the heavy metal community for your Christmas music, but Rob Halford recorded a Christmas album, Halford Three Winter Songs. Here's Halford's take on We Three Kings. Rob Halford and I spoke in 2009, back when the show was called The Sound of Young America. You were born in 1951, which means that um, when you were finishing high school and, and you, know, you were in your late teens, 
it was just as uh, heavy rock music was emerging from uh, uh, early rock and psychedelic rock. Um, what was the music that you heard that made you think, I like rock and I want it to be loud and hard? Well, it, actually, Jesse, it was even before that because I can remember my, my Aunt Pat giving me an old record player that she wanted to get rid of, and, and it was still in pretty good working order. So I think I was probably, what, 10 or 11 when she gave me this uh, record player, and I lifted the lid, and there was a bunch of 45s in the singles in the uh, in the deck, and it was Little Richard, Bill Haley and the Comets, and Elvis Presley, and I played them all back-to-back, and even at that age at that moment it was my god this is it this is it this is me this is electric this is contacting me in in such a such a strong personal way you know something's going on here why why is it making me feel this way i just felt alive and felt genuinely excited and and so even from that point before as i grew you know slightly beyond my teenage years um, it was already in my system. So, yeah, you know, obviously Hendrix, uh, The Yardbirds, uh, Cream, King Crimson, early Led Zeppelin, early Deep Purple, The Who, all of these people um, were the ones that I was listening to. The first couple of albums that uh, Judas Priest made um, it didn't have any huge hits on them, and um, it, it, must have been a, it must have been a bit of a struggle to continue uh, to be working as a musician, um, did you feel confident that that this was going to become something? Yes, I think self belief is absolutely vital. Uh, it, no matter what you do in life, self belief doesn't matter what you're going to do. You, you've got to have that. You've got to have that inner drive, you know, and particularly in the entertainment business. And I, and I say that rather than the heavy metal business or the rock and roll business because it is, that's what we do, you know. Um, there are so many pitfalls and there are so many days where, is it worth it? I'm going to give up. This is crazy. I'm not getting anywhere. That really puts you through, again, that kind of apprenticeship period of, look, if this means so much to you, you will do anything that you need to do. You will go through whatever you need to go through. And particularly in my role as Judas Priest, we did all of that. We did the sleeping in the back of the van. We did the barely having enough food for one meal a day type of deal. You know, KK scrubbing his teeth in the snow in Scandinavia is not a story made up. It's a real thing, you know. And um, and the first record that we made, Rock a Roller, it was called, our first label, we went to them and asked them for, I think it was like $20 a week each to survive because... If we didn't have that, we'd have to have second second uh, sources of income. And they turned us down flat. So right through the, the early part of the band's career in Priest especially, we were doing multiple multiple jobs, you know, to just to pay the bills and, and put some food in your stomach. But the, most of it went into, into equipment, obviously. New strings, new drum skins, uh, a new mic, whatever it was. Um, you, have to, you have to really figure that out. You really have to figure this out right at the early stage. The thing is, what happens there is your, your, your early music is probably sometimes the, your best music because you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose. You're not famous. You know, you haven't got a gold record. 
You haven't got a platinum record. You're not playing in front of thousands of people. So your creativity is coming from a very pure source. So now, you know, in my 38th, 39th year of being a professional musician, I look back at those early days with a lot of fond uh, memories. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to Rob Halford. He's the front man for the legendary metal band Judas Priest. You came out in the um, in the early 90s. When and, and to what extent were you out as uh, gay to your friends and, and your family and the and the people that you were working with in Judas Priest? Well, it, with family, it was never discussed. It still isn't discussed now. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I'm, me and my partner have been together for 15 years. Um, you know, it's like the elephant, the elephant in the living room type of deal. I love my family dearly, and they respect me as much as I respect them. And that, at the end of the day, is the issue, isn't it? It's respect. Respect each other for who we are. We're all different. Different sexual orientation, different religion, different colours of the skin, different jobs, different social strata. It doesn't really matter. If the respect is there, you know, we can get through a lot of things in life. But with me, you know, being a metalhead, being in a... In a, in a in an essentially, and to some extent, still essentially homophobic realm in music, um, it was difficult. But again, you you learn to deal with it. What what I was doing for the longest time was putting a lot of things before myself. And when I went through my drug and rehab thing in 1986, I've been clean and sober since 1986. I was taught you've got to put your own house in order first. You've got to really. It's not being selfish. You've got to get yourself kind of figured out and then everything else will not necessarily fall into place around you, but at least you can take care of other things. But look after your own needs first. And and I, I thought, that's is that the right way to live? But it is. It's the only way you can remain sane and sensible and in the, and in the end connect and be helpful and useful to other people as and when you need to. So I, I struggled with all that through through many, many years until the moment came when very... Um, you know, unpre-planned. Uh, I mentioned that speaking as a gay man, yada yada yada. I was on MTV, and the you know the producer dropped his clipboard, <laughs> and he's like, "Did he just say that?" You know, and then it was like a firestorm around the world. What what we all found very very quickly was that in the metal community, it's it's nothing more than the greatest place to be in terms of respect and tolerance. And compassion and understanding, and I'm probably so, it's probably easy for me to say that because I'd already reached a level of success. So um, I also found out that a lot of people were going, "Yeah, we need that anyway," <laughs> but I didn't know that. I mean, it's one of those you know you can't see the wood for the trees type of deal. Um, I need to backtrack slightly and, and address that that statement about homophobic metalheads. That's not entirely true. That's not painting the whole picture. I think there's a small portion, as in all walks of life, where you have that level of intolerance and bigotry, and sometimes it's curable, sometimes it's not. For me, it was acceptance, and it was just a wonderful feeling. Um, Everybody in the band in Priest knew, you know, I knew that my family and and all my close friends knew, because it was, you know, well, has he got a girlfriend? He did did have a girlfriend, you know, and the second guessing and innuendo. What you do when you set yourself free... Uh, is is just that you set yourself free when you step out of the closet it's not for everybody, not everybody can do it, some people never do, some people prefer to live the way they live and you know again respect is the word but if if you can if you're able um, 
I always urge people to to consider that moment because it's the greatest feeling in the world. All the all the whispering behind your back. You you take the ammunition away from people. You become a stronger person, and that's what it's all about. And and I'm I'm assuming that a lot of young people are listening to me talk right now, and I know that in in my life as a teenager, I was going through absolute hell trying to come to issues with, with my sexuality. And it's still, a, it's still a problem now, even in today's enlightened world and, and the, the self-help groups and all the places you, you can talk this type of issue through. It's a, it's a horrible thing to try and come to terms with, but you've got to come to terms with it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a freak. You're not weird. You're perfectly normal. You're okay. That's just the way it's turned out to be. It's not a choice of lifestyle as, a, as, as opposed to what the extreme right will say. We can change you. We can cure you. Forget it. That's rubbish. You know, you are who you are. Be proud of who you are and step forward. You know, I, I was thinking as you, were, as you were saying that about, you know, the spirit of uh, so much of metal and especially so much of Judas Priest is about... Um, uh, is about this kind of outrageous 11 out of 10 um, uh, self-expression and, you know, vanquishing foes and yes. freedom. Yes. Um, it must have been very difficult to present yourself in that way while, while as, as a god of that mm. while you were struggling with those issues yourself. Maybe that's where I put some of that, you know, this is like... Uh, Jesse, Doctor Phil here because maybe <laughs> that's where it was because you know I'm I'm the primary lyric writer for Priest obviously and in all my solo activities, all of my lyrics are full of optimism, all of my lyrics are full of that confrontational situation. I believe the good will always out win, will always win over evil. I believe that. I think that's the way of the world, and. Um, I, I use that. I use a lot of, you know, metaphors and, and kind of smoke screens and a little bit of ambiguity in my lyrics. But, um, you know, when I'm talking about the painkiller, you can, you can put that up against anything, dictatorship, um, you know, bigotry, war, you know, a- anything anything where you, you can overcome um, difficulty. So maybe that's what I was doing in all those years. I mean, I kind of sidetracked in the turbo record, you know, and, and went a little bit more lightweight, so to speak. But I, I still think those messages are valuable in terms of fantasy and escapism and rock and roll. But the, the, the bulk of my lyrics have always had kind of a, a serious uh, content to them. And fortunately, being in a metal band, I was able to, to utilise those messages in the lyrics in, uh, in the right way. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford. He's best known as the frontman of the legendary metal band Judas Priest. Here's one of their signature hits, Hellbent for Leather.
starting in the late 70s with uh, one of your signature hit, hits, uh, Hellbent for Leather, you, you started in wearing it essentially, I don't know, I, like basically something between biker clothes and S&M clothes mm. um, and doing things like, you know, riding in on a motorcycle and all these, mm. all these crazy things. Mm. Um, when did you first start thinking like, you know what would be great for this band? Like if we just went to the uh, bondage store and just bought some <laughs> crazy stuff. Well, that's the only way. In those days, that, that was the only way you could get that kind of gear. <laughs> Mr. S in London. I think he's still there, actually. Um, but if you look on the YouTube and and put in Judas Priest Japan 1970-something, you'll see a very different-looking band. Um, we didn't really establish the, that particular, the correct look <laughs> uh, until uh, probably um, Sadwings, no, Sin After Sin, Staying Class. There's the, 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 the song you mentioned, Jesse, Hellbent for Leather, which is a great song, and actually it was Glenn that wrote the lyrics to those, um, that particular tune. Um, a Glint of Steel and a Flash of Light, you know. Uh, again, it's a very assertive, macho type of song. And I remember us talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool? This is a, a biker song. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring a bike on stage? And I remember whatever, wherever we were at, we asked someone, is there anybody here who rides a bike? And somebody did. And we said, hey, we'll give you five quid, you know, ten bucks, if we can, you know, use the bike on stage. And that's how it all started. And now, of course, that's become kind of part of tradition and the heritage of the band. And and so suddenly, heavy metal music, the sound, the power, uh, the dynamic, the aggression, uh, all of the great um, aesthetics of, of metal had a look. So now when you see somebody walking down the street, they're not going to be decked out like we are on stage. But if you, you see somebody and you go, there's a metalhead, you know the attributes with the studied belts and the chains or whatever, the, the wristbands, that's your, um, those are your colours, so to speak. Were you aware in the, in the early 80s of the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of odd irony of the fact that this was the, <laughs> that this was the metal costume, yeah. but it was also a, a see, gay subculture yeah. costume? You see, that's just me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, I, I, I kind of think that's cool. There's something about me. I don't know whether it's the inner child or the inner stupidity, but, you know, or the naivety, but that never even crossed my mind, and I was walking out on stage with this, you know, village people type of vibe going, and I thought it was extremely funny, extremely funny. It's bittersweet when you think of the torment I was going through mentally, but, um, yeah, uh, and, and I'm kind of I'm kind of glad, really. Uh, I mean, uh, in in essence, I mean, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not a I'm not into that kind of scene of, of of my particular world. Again, respect it just doesn't appeal to me. But but it is ironic that um, that, uh, that there's a correlation there, and people were going, "Come on, Rob, we knew all the time. You didn't have to tell us." <laughs> <laughs> you you were really hiding in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, hiding in plain sight, exactly. We'll have more from Rob Halford of Judas Priest after a break. Plus, I'll sit down with the delightful girl group legend Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ThriveMarket.com, an online shopping club where healthy, organic foods and non-toxic products are up to 50% off retail prices and shipped to your door. 
You can easily filter by your preferences, including vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And when you become a member, ThriveMarket.com will donate a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military veteran. Go to ThriveMarket.com NPR to start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the How to Do Everything podcast with Mike and Ian. Among other things, they can help you find giant insects, serve eggnog, and welcome extraterrestrials. Mike and Ian are here for you. How to Do Everything is modern life lessons from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to Rob Halford. He's the front man for the legendary metal band Judas Priest. What was the, um, looking back, the most kind of r- ridiculous, amazing, delightful, uh, you know, spinal tap moment uh, that you had in your presentation? Well, again, you know, again, it's 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 something that's kind of tinged with sadness because here's the deal. It's the ultimate spinal tap moment. We, um, we were on the painkiller tour. We were coming to the end of the tour. Remember, this is 1991. We'd just come off the back of that very very difficult Reno trial. Prior to that, the band had been working pretty much nonstop for 30 years I, uh, I should, without a break. I should interject here that you're, you're referring to, you, you had been uh, uh, sued in civil court um, yes. by uh, the parents of two children who had committed suicide, and um, yes. the suggestion was that it was your, your subliminal messages in your music that had driven them to suicide. Exactly, and of course that was complete and utter rubbish, and it was an extremely difficult uh time to go through we were in a court in reno for a month and we faced these accusers uh and um basically told them that firstly you should take you should take responsibility for your kids and i think that's what parents should do and i mean i know it's difficult but you should still be take responsibility for your kids until they're old enough you know to leave the nest um the kids were out of control drugs and booze the only thing that they loved was their metal. They loved Judas Priest. That's the irony of that, that particular situation. They were hardcore Priest fans, but they got messed up with um, with booze and drugs, you know. So you're coming off of this really difficult period. Coming off with that, you know, but we, we held back the release of Painkiller, but now it was time to release it. We released it. We had an incredibly successful tour all around the world, and I think the last show was at um, in Toronto. And we were playing in a... One of these baseball fields that you know doubles up as a as an outside venue. Loads of people, thirty thousand people, whatever. The stage was in the middle of the baseball field. The dressing rooms were obviously, you know, where the dugouts are, that type of deal. So we, to get from that location to the stage, we had to get on golf carts. The lights go down, the, the fans start going crazy. We jump on golf carts and we're all going off in different directions <laughs> for a start-off. They're spinal tap. Somebody, some of us are going north, some of us are going south. We eventually somehow get to the stage. While the intro tape is running, I dash up, get onto my Harley Davidson, which is under the drum riser, at a queue in the intro tape. These pneumatic steps come up underneath the drum riser and I'm able to roar out on the Harley. Everything was going to plan until suddenly somebody somebody yelled, we can't find KK, we can't find him, we've got to stop and start again. Well, that's what we were attempting to do, but nobody told me this. So I roared out on the bike. The guy that operates the stairs was bringing him back down 
So I just belted into the bottom seat, uh, bottom set of stairs rather, at, I don't know how many miles an hour, knocked myself double back, you know, gymnastics, Beijing, <laughs> landed on my back underneath all this smoke and dry ice. The bikes fell, fell fall into one side almost on top of me, and I'm, I'm practically, I'm literally knocked out. Everything is a blur, everything's got whoosh, zooming in and out for about a minute or so. Then I can feel Glenn kicking me, trying to find where Rob is. And that, that was and still will be the only time that Hellbent for Leather was an, was, was an instrumental because it had no vocals on. So there it is. That's that. I mean, how more spinal type can you get than that? I sh- you know. We should say, too, that you were knocked unconscious, but you finished the show. Yeah, I, I did. I Well, you know, the show must go on, as Freddie, Freddie Mercury used to say. It's the Bullseye Holiday Special. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford of Judas Priest. He got into the holiday spirit with his 2009 album Halford Three Winter Songs. It includes his own takes on Christmas classics as well as some original tunes. Here's one of those. Get into the spirit. We've talked a lot about things that are uh, really super metal, like uh, riding motorcycles and wearing outrageous outfits and rocking out and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, on uh, Probably towards the bottom of that list is Christmas. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, actually, it's on the top of my list right now. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, I, I think uh, the question needs to be asked, um, what, what led you to think... I should make a metal Christmas album. Because I'm the metal god and I can do what I damn well want. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel that way. You know, um, I was talking to Jason Bonham the other day. We did a charity show uh, in Los Angeles uh, for the, uh, the Midnight Mission, I think it's called. It was me, Jason, Slash, uh, Steve from Toto, Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer, Tony White on bass, Ed Roth on drums, uh, on the keyboards. It was like a super group. And uh, Jason and I were talking afterwards, uh, and uh, we sounded like a bunch of grumpy old men, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and I, I, brought, I said, Jason, just listen to us talk, bro. You know, this is, this is Jason Bonham, the son of the late, great Bonzo Bonham, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, one of the greatest bands of all time. And um, so uh, we just got a little, a little bit sidetracked, and then we said, you know, how cool it is that that we can do what we do, and that we we can really pick and choose where we want to go in our in our career. And so that's where I feel I have the great luxury these days to be able to do that. I'm, I'm able to look at where I've been and look at the opportunities that still 
have a sense of adventure attached to them, and so that's what it is with me right now with um, Halford 3, the first solo release from the Halford Band in about seven years. It's a Christmas record, yeah. It's ten tracks, six of them um, are quite famous uh, traditional uh, holiday songs and four original uh, pieces of, of, of music. And um, I love the season. I love the holiday season. It's, it means a lot to me. Uh, I'll be there this Christmas time with my family uh, back in the UK, mum and dad and brother and sister and friends and relatives. It'll be great. There's something very charming about uh, the mix of uh, sort of older Christmas songs. I mean, not Let It Snow, but like, um, uh, you know, What Child Is This? Mm. Um, and the uh, sort of grand scale of your music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was was that part of was that part of what drew you to this uh, to the material to the traditional songs that you chose particularly? Well, well, thank you for acknowledging that. And sometimes again, wood for the trees. But yeah, I mean, there's a there's a vast there's a vast dynam- dynamic canyon between Oh Holy Night, which is this gigantic opus with crushing guitars and keyboards and drums and big massive vocals, to that really delicate uh, What Child Is This. And um, it was like pick and choose. We were not going to do Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Foster <laughs> the Snowman. That would have been ridiculous. We, we, wanted to make a, we wanted to make a pretty serious record, quite frankly. I mean, I, you know, I, I carry a lot of things with me. It's not baggage. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I represent. And I wasn't going to let the team down uh, by going, you know, completely off, off, the, off the planet, whatever. And so... Um, th- those particular ones that I covered, Oh Holy Night, Come All You Faithful, We Three Kings, um, they're beautiful songs, they're great songs. A good song will always take interpretation and, and, and adaptation, so you're able to put your own kind of impression and your own signature, whatever you want to call it, onto the piece. And uh, it was it took a took a bit of a time to figure out where we were where we were going to go in in covering those those beautiful um, beautiful tracks. And then the other the other tracks, the originals, were kind of spontaneous uh, pieces that came together just because it was such an inspiring uh, recording session. But this is me, you know, it's the metal god for the holiday season, and uh, there it is. Rob Halford, frontman of the band Judas Priest, his Christmas album is Halford Three. Winter Songs. It's a collection of both original and traditional holiday music done in his own distinctive and very heavy style. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ronnie Spector and her girl group, the Ronettes, were the centerpiece of the Phil Spector Wall of Sound in the 1960s. Their huge hit, Be My Baby, still gets tons of airplay on oldie stations. Ronnie was a teenager when she started recording, and the only thing bigger than her ambition was her hair. In 1963, the Ronettes recorded some of the most iconic Christmas music ever made. The album was called A Christmas Gift to You from Phil Spector. It's been a few decades, but Ronnie's love for Christmas hasn't faded one bit. When I spoke to her in 2010, she just recorded a new album of Christmas songs. It's called Ronnie Spector's Best Christmas Ever. Let's listen to It's the Time.
I was listening. I was listening to your EP, and there's this uh, wonderful little interlude um, about you you asking your father where Santa Claus was going to come into the house. And and I grew up in the city without a fireplace <laughs> myself, um, and I remember having that very same uh, that very same conversation. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Jesse, I I remember I was around six or seven years old. And I, I was so in love with Christmas and Santa and Frosty and all that stuff. And I, I, w- I remember being in school and in, in the books, they always had Santa with the black, you know, the black boots on coming down the chimney. So I asked my father, I said, we don't have a chimney. Where's Santa? How is he going to get here? I was so upset and frustrated. And he said, Ronnie, Santa is coming down the fire escape. I was so happy, Jesse. I ran to my room. I put the covers over my head, and I fell fast asleep. And that's the true story. <laughs> <laughs> what What were the things? What were the things that you did special at Christmas uh, uh, growing up in in Manhattan? Oh gosh! I, well, first of all, I always went to Radio City to watch the ice skating rink, and my father would always take me and my sister to see them put up the tree when they lit it. You know, uh, at Radio City. Sure. So we did so, so many things like that. Um, and just getting Christmas ready at the house. I remember my father, because we lived in an apartment, and he used to take the tree and drag it down the hall. That's when I knew it was really Christmas. Now, you had uh, you just had one sister in the house who, who later joined you in the Ronettes. But yes. I, I know you had a very large extended family, like dozens of cousins. <laughs> yeah. 23, like, first cousins. It was amazing. Um, You know why, Jesse? My mom had six sisters and seven brothers. Wow. So that's why I had so many first cousins and stuff. And they were my first audience, my seven uncles and my six aunts. These were my audience, and they applauded me every Sunday at my grandmother's house. And that's when I said, I can do this, and I'm only, like, seven years old. Was, Was singing part of your Christmases as a kid? Of course. That was how it all started. I was like six years old, and I remember my mother taking... Well, my mother was a waitress, you know, and she stood up on her feet all day, and I just had to go sit on Santa's lap. So my mother took me to Macy's, (laughs) and I felt so bad as I grew older to remember, wow, my mother stood up on her feet all day as a waitress, and then she took me to see Santa Claus at Macy's, and we had to stand on line for like two hours and I said, Mom, I can't go. And she would say, Honey, I'm so tired. I said, But Mom, if I don't sit on Santa's lap, I'm going to be crazy this Christmas. She said, Okay, Ronnie, okay. Or Veronica is what they called me back then. And uh, I sat on Santa's lap, and that was when I fell in love with Christmas, with Santa, with Frosty, with the tree, everything. I mean, that's when it started, at sitting on Santa's lap at Macy's. Why don't we hear a little bit of your classic Christmas recording of Frosty the Snowman, uh, Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes. Yes. Frosty the Snowman
how old were you when you first went up on stage at Amateur Night at the Apollo? Oh, I was like 11. <laughs> 12, We're, something like way in that age. Tell, tell me about that, that first time that you performed at the, uh, at, at the Apollo. Do you remember it? Oh, God, like it was yesterday. It was my first show ever, you know, professional show. And I remember uh, it was Nedra, myself, Estelle, and two, another cousin, and my cousin Ira, which is a boy cousin, because back then they had Frankie Lyman, the students, Frankie Valley, you know, all these guy singers. So I said to my cousin Ira, I said, maybe you should sing lead. So we go out there to amateur night. I'll never, ever forget. My cousin Ira has the microphone in his hand, and nothing comes out. <laughs> I was petrified. So I grabbed the mic from him, and I started singing, Why do birds sing? You know, the Frankie Lyman song. So I started, and the audience went nuts for me. So for me, you know, it was like I was passing because... They didn't know what we were, but they loved me. And I said, oh, my God, if I can pass at the Apollo, they'll love me all over the world. And I was very young, you know, to have all these kind of feelings about touring all over the world. And my mother would always say, don't get too excited. This is show business we're talking about. You don't know if you're going to make a hit record. You don't know anything. But I did know I loved the stage, and I got it from a very early age. The Bullseye Holiday Special continues after a break. We'll hear more of my interview with girl group legend Ronnie Spector. She'll tell us about collaborating with Joey Ramone. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Netflix, presenting Making a Murderer, which follows the harrowing story of Stephen Avery, an outsider from the wrong side of the tracks who was exonerated after serving 18 years for a brutal assault. He filed a $36 million lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement. But in the midst of his very public civil case, he suddenly finds himself the prime suspect in a grisly new crime. All episodes of Making a Murderer are available this Friday, only on Netflix. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the How to Do Everything podcast with Mike and Ian. Among other things, they can help you find giant insects, serve eggnog, and welcome extraterrestrials. Mike and Ian are here for you. How to Do Everything is modern life lessons from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking with the girl group singer Ronnie Spector, formerly of the Ronettes. Her holiday EP is called Ronnie Spector's Best Christmas Ever. You and your sister and cousin had this uh, outrageous uh, look um, <laughs> in, in, the, in that beginning of your career. I wonder how long it took uh, for you to, and what you had to do to get your hair as high as it was when you were uh, on stage. I was watching some film clips, and I was very impressed <laughs> at the sheer, uh, the sheer height of, of what was on top of your head. Well, I'll tell you what we had to do. First of all, you had to tease it a lot and use a lot of Aquanet hairspray. That's what we used in the 60s, Aquanet. Then you wind it around your hair. Then you twit it again, and then you uh, tease it again. We had a lot of hair. I guess it was for you know because of our background and stuff. <laughs> That's what I said about me and Keith Richards. If, <laughs> if we had married and had kids, we would have great. Our kids would have great hair. <laughs> I always say that to Keith. 
Tell me about how you first met the Beatles. Okay. Well, first of all, the Beatles hadn't come to America yet, so they weren't even known in America. And when we were over in England, we were like on front pages of every paper there. So the uh, the Beatles wanted to see the, uh, Decca Records gave us a party because that's what was our label over there. So Decca Records gave us a party, and guess who showed up? The Beatles. <laughs> and John Lennon was with cockeye over me, and uh, he took me in this back room at Decca Records, and I almost had to use a whip to get that guy out of the room. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I met all of them. I love them all. I love the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones were my opening act in, in England, so I knew them real good. <laughs> we used to travel on the tour bus together, and Keith and I would go, and when it got too foggy and stuff in London, we would pull over, the bus would pull over, and Keith and I would get out and knock on doors, and, and they were so nice. They would open the door, and I would say, hi, I'm Ronnie, Ronnie of the Ronettes, and Keith would say, I'm Keith of the Rolling Stones. They let us in, they give us stones and tea and everything, <laughs> and we take it out to the bus and give Mick some and the other guys, you know, Brian, I mean... Everything. I knew those guys better than I knew the American groups. Were your folks still on board for the whole rock and roll star thing (laughs) when they saw that slit in the side of your skirt? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, my mother toured with us everywhere we went, even the Apollo Theater overseas in England. She was with us every step of the way. Because she told me once, she said, if you sit on a guy's lap and you feel something hard, get up and run. <laughs> so I did. I, sat, I was sitting on John Lennon's lap at the plaza, and um, I felt something. And I got up and ran. And that's a true story. <laughs> and he called me the next day. He was so uh, embarrassed like by it. He said, we want to get out of here. We're like prisoners in this plaza. you got to get us out of here, Ronnie. I said, I can take you up to Harlem to get some uh, ribs and chicken. They said, we'd love it. So I got them out of there, took them up to Harlem. We had a blast. Nobody recognized them, and it was great. They loved it because nobody recognized them. When did you become aware of what a sort of holiday icon that that Phil Spector Christmas record uh, made you and your contemporaries? When did you start to feel that these songs were going to be more than just um, more than just what a Christmas record usually is, which is, um, you know, just a way to uh, yeah. uh, sell a couple hundred thousand records for uh, uh, <laughs> for a hit band. You know what I mean? Well, I tell you one thing. Uh, Phil Spector was Jewish. He didn't know anything about Christmas. So he'd come <laughs> to my house and tell, ask me, what. that's why I sang I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. He'd say, what did your mother and father do when you were a little girl? And so all my songs and Forcey the Snowman and Sleigh Ride. I loved slaying. So my everything that's on that album of my stuff was actually done from my own words to Phil. And that's how he got He didn't even think about Christmas because, I, like I said, he was Jewish. So I uh, I got him really into Christmas. That's how he made that. Uh, it's a Christmas gift for you. Let's hear Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes singing I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Okay. Mwah. I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus Underneath the mistletoe last night She didn't see me creep Down the stairs to have a peek
So you've been doing these holiday shows for uh, more than 20 years now, since the, yes. since, since the end of the 80s. Yep. <laughs> Um, what do you, what do you have to do to, to gear yourself up for, uh, for the Christmas season? What, how do you, how do you, how do you want to get yourself into that Christmas place? Well, I've got two kids, two boys. And what I do is I put on a Christmas gift for you, my old Christmas album, you know, and I put that on and then we start build, uh, you know, doing the Christmas tree and putting all the stuff on it, you know, the bulbs and the, the, Everything, the peppermint sticks, everything. And that's how I get into Christmas, of course. And then I put my records on. Now I have a new Christmas thing called Ronnie Spector's Best Christmas Ever. So this year I've been listening to that even way before it's Christmas because I have to learn the song. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ronnie Spector. Her holiday EP is called Ronnie Spector's Best Christmas Ever. I really loved listening to uh, a, a couple of a couple of songs that you recorded in the seventies. One of them was um, was this song called "Try Some Buy Some" that you recorded for Apple Records. Yes, um, with tell George me, Harrison. Tell me how you ended up not just uh, being pals with the Beatles, but recording with them. Well, it was very simple. They said we want Ronnie Spector's voice on Apple Records, and um, my ex-husband took me over to England. We got over there, and I get into the studio. There's one person in there, and his hair was long, so I couldn't really see who it was. And I got up, and he was sitting at the piano, and he looked up, and it was George Harrison. And we hugged and kissed. Well, not that kind of kissing, but, you know, <laughs> hugged and kissed and everything. And it was so great. And he wrote, try some, buy some for me, right there on the spot. And we did that song, and... um then I went back to California to be with my uh, adopted children. Let's let's hear "Try Some Buy Some" from uh, the early nineteen seventies, a yeah, song written it. written by George Harrison, performed by Ronnie Spector. Way back in time, someone said, "Try some." You also recorded in uh, the 1990s with uh, Joey Ramone of the Ramones. Oh yes, um, love Joey. How did you How did you first meet him? Well, I had met Joey um, like a few years before we recorded and stuff. We'd always meet at this place called the Continental down on Eighth Street, and then we got to talking one night. So he said, "Ronnie, I would love to record you. Have, you're my favorite female singer." 
So he said, we got to make a record together. And at the time, I didn't know Joey was sick. You know, I didn't have any clue. And then we would go over to Daniel Ray's house, his best friend, which lived a block from him. And that's when he would bring his lunch. We did uh, like four uh, EP and everything. And I had no idea. We did this one song called Memory. You know, and it was like telling me he will only be a memory in, in the near future. And I had no idea that he was dying and stuff. And it devastated me when I couldn't go and see him in the hospital that very last time. He said, I don't want Ronnie to see me like this. So I didn't see him the very last time, and it broke my heart. He broke, he was the nicest guy, and he was so, um, sorry, genuine. You know, he loved rock and roll. Woke up thinking about you today. Why does it have to be this way? We drove We had fun, we drove each other crazy. I'll always love you. Bye bye, baby. Baby. Had you heard his records when you first met him? Oh yes, of course. What did you think of them? I mean, it's 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 something that they're they're so deeply rooted in the music that you made, but they're also so completely different. Well, that's what I liked about them: the fact that they were like me and they liked my music, but they were different from me. That's just like the Beatles and the Stones. We were all so different. It's a little Ronnie sitting in the middle of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and then I come to New York and I've got Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, and Joey Ramone and the Ramones. So I, I've been surrounded by people that love my voice, thank God. <laughs> what do you enjoy most about um, being a music performer? I love being in the recording studio because it brings me to the stage with new material, and of course I sing all my old songs, but... It's nothing like doing something new and fresh and, you know, like the new CD. It has all my songs on the originals. And, you know, Sleigh Ride and Frosty, all those records were like Irving Berlin and stuff. But my stuff that I did now is like stuff that is original, and I love that. Ronnie Spector's Christmas EP is called Ronnie Spector's Best Christmas Ever. Merry voices raised in singing Carols through the streets are ringing Oh, because it's Christmas once again Lovers kiss in public shining Everything is ready 
Every week on Bullseye, we like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. This week, despite being the holidays, is no exception. It's the outshot. So I don't have a lot of holiday traditions, personally. I mean, I love Christmas. I used to do it twice a year, once with Dad and once with Mom. It was great. Two trees, two sets of presents, two bottles of eggnog from Mitchell's Ice Cream. I just don't have a lot of special things that I do now as a grown-up. There is one, though. Every year, I make some time for the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas Special. Oh, it's Christmas in the Playhouse And the hearts are all aglow As we welcome you to the Playhouse And to Pee-wee's Christmas Special The Playhouse was a crazy postmodern version of mid-century America. Cowboys and puppets and hipster jazz bows the perfect place to have a crazy Christmas. Something that celebrates warmth and giving and kindness, but is also completely insane. Like ice skating with Little Richard. Hi, Little Richard. How's it going? Happy week! <laughs> Great gosh almighty! Little Richard, oh, are you oh, all right? Oh, you know me, Pee-wee. Always fall down. But I get right back up and try again. If at first you don't succeed, you know what they say. You're trying, you're trying, you're trying. Ah! <laughs> Except ice skating. I give up, I quit. And Pee Wee forcing Frankie and Annette Funicello into holiday decoration making indentured servitude. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to separate you two. Now get back to work. I need 500 of each of those by sundown. <laughs> 500? A call from Oprah. Hello? Hello? Pee-wee, is this you? Who wants to know? This is Oprah Winfrey. Hi. 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 I just wanted to say Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Oprah. I'm going to have to call you back. I have dinosaur on the other line. (laughs) 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 There's even a part where a giant crate gets delivered from the North Pole, and inside is Grace Jones. Okay, Pee-wee. It's Grace Jones. Wait a minute. You're not the president. You're Pee-wee Herman. Duh! I mean, come on. It's easy to complain about how ridiculous Christmas is. Too commercial, too phony, too religious, not religious enough. But why not just celebrate? The holidays are great. Right in the depths of winter, there's some time where we've all agreed to think about what we're grateful for and do a little something nice for each other. We might as well have a few laughs along the way. So I say, thanks, Pee-wee, for 25 years of fun and friendship. Feliz Navidad. That's the end of another Bullseye Holiday Special. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. 
If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the comedian Guy Branham. This week, they're talking about Spike Lee's Chirac. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.